Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 320 and the return of the University of North Alabama percussion professor, Tracy Wiggins. And we'll get to him shortly. But first up, PASIC 2022. I got to be at PASIC in Indianapolis for Thursday and most of Friday sessions. I then headed out of town for a family wedding, but really enjoyed my short time there. It was great to connect with a lot of friends, many previous guests, and so many other folks throughout. In particular, it was great to hear from Miranda and Josh, two folks who stopped me at someone else's session during the week to tell me outright how much they enjoyed the podcast. Those moments literally made my whole week. But as time passes, it also gets harder to find everyone I've had on the show at PASIC. Guess this is what happens when you host a weekly show for going on six and a half years. But that's a good problem. There are plenty of folks I didn't see at all or spotted them from a distance and didn't get a chance to say hello or get the PASIC selfies that I take at every conference. In any case, reconnecting with folks or actually meeting them in person, which happened a lot this time around, or just chatting with folks you run into that made for a really good time. Plus, it was great to get a chance to hang out for a long time with my UNCG best friend and previous podcast guest, Jeff Galissi. I'll talk more about what I saw at PASIC over the weeks that I display these episodes, but for now, let's move to this week's virtual PASIC, taking place Friday and Saturday, November 18th and 19th. As some of you may know, I'll be presenting my already recorded virtual clinic on using and creating podcasts to improve your teaching. And I'll talk more about that after the conversation with Tracy. So let's get to that conversation. It was definitely time to have Tracy Wiggins back on the show. Tracy was on the show for episode 27 in 2017. He's an early adopter, and that episode is in the show notes. And a lot has gone on for him since then. It was also a perfect time to have him on because he is also presenting during Virtual PASIC, a fundamental session on teaching and working with improvisation. So we'll get to hear about Tracy's upcoming session, along with updates from the University of North Alabama studio, working their way at UNA through COVID, Tracy's being a member of the PAS Board of Advisors, and much more. Additionally, if you follow Tracy, particularly on Facebook, you know that he will often post about the percussion world and do so with great thought and detail. Just for that and those posts, it's worth it to be friends with him there. So go do that, and you'll get that sense in this interview. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 29th, 2022, and it begins right now. So, Tracy, tell me what you're presenting this year at PASIC and when you're presenting it. I'm doing a fundamental session on improvisation, um, which, as far as I know, is a new thing. Um, And when I proposed it, I was trying to make it a new thing. Um, I know that uh, Gloria, in the last year or two, did like a session on improvisation and stuff. But this is, I think, the first time it's been presented as like a fundamentals thing. I think it's uh, runs no opens November nineteenth at like noon or something like that. So, um, but I originally proposed it as an in person session because my whole idea was I wanted to get people from the audience up on stage improvising together. Like that was like a key part of the proposal. Um, you know, I'm happy to do it in this in this virtual setting, but it definitely it kind of changed the direction of the whole the whole thing that I had planned for it. So, but the idea of the session was that I've been doing a lot of improvising with the fact that I also teach the contemporary ensemble here. And we do a lot of improvisation in that group uh, because we do like a lot of open score pieces and stuff like that. And, you know, with the, with my studying like Cage and Feldman and everything, like it just kind of became like a part of what I did over time. And then I started incorporating that more and more with my students um, because I have a lot of students that are actually really interested in composing and things like that. And so they start getting interested in it as a way to like generate ideas 
for compositions. So the idea of this session is basically how to like incorporate improvisation into sort of like your daily, weekly practice routine. You know, so things like taking um, taking pieces that you're working on and like exerting like little segments that you need to like work, like you need to learn notes for like this part or whatever and like improvising over that, taking them into like different rhythmic patterns or, you know, moving them around with the keyboard or whatever, like trying to create new ideas out of stuff you're working on. Cause I do that a lot. Like if I'm playing like a symphony thing and I've got like a nasty, like keyboard lick I've got to play, I will come up with every possible configuration of how to play that lick that I can to just kind of like give me more way, more ways to like sort of ingrain it in my brain and stuff. So I, that's one of the ways that I talk about doing it. The second way that I talk about is the, is exploring sound. So we have a lot of instruments that have a tremendous amount of like sound capabilities that I think sometimes we barely even tap into. And so the second way that I talk about doing it is using improvisation as a way to like kind of figure out how to create and manipulate sound on different instruments. You know, so one of the examples I use is like taking a tam-tam, right? Big old gorgeous, like, you know, 40 inch tam-tam and thinking of, every single possible way that you can generate sound off of that instrument. And I also do that with things like taking, like teaching tambourine. Like I show them, you know, all of the different ways that we can like play orchestral tambourine and stuff like that. Show them some like Middle Eastern techniques and everything. And then kind of send them away and say, now go mess around with this for a while. Right. Like improvise, like, you know, make stuff up with this to help give yourself like more familiarity with how you can do all of this. And then we'll start to kind of incorporate that in rounding that into like how to do it in like music and everything. And then the third tenet that I used with it is just creativity, you know? Um, and this is something I really got more into, I think really during the pandemic, like the pandemic changed a lot of things about like how I view things and stuff. And so I really got into the idea of the fact that we spend a lot of time teaching our students how to reproduce things that other people have told them how to produce, right? And at some point in there, their capability of like just being creative themselves doesn't always enter into the equation. And th these kids like they have like a mind where they want to be creative about stuff. They want to explore things. They want to express like, especially this generation wants to express themselves. I started talking about using it as a tool to like for, you know, composition or, you know, I've, I've done several recitals where literally I just put a bunch of stuff on the stage and walked out on the stage and was like, all right, well, let's see what happens for the next hour. And those have actually been some of the most fun recitals I've done where there was like no real plan other than I had these instruments and how am I going to do this? And that really opened up a lot of ideas for me. Cause I'm not, I don't consider myself a composer. I'm not like a, I'm going to sit down and like write a composition or whatever, but I really like just walking up to an instrument and just kind of seeing what I can do with it. And so I was trying to kind of open up that idea for students as well. And then for a lot of them, they can lead that into composing. I get a lot of kids are interested in the jazz thing. And so then we start to like talk about how to like do that over like chords and stuff like that. But there's just so many different venue avenues that that can go. So the, the whole thing is really structured in like those three parts of how to like approach it through those three ideas. Um, because I mean, improvisation is literally on the NAFME national standards for music but walk into a band and orchestra room and tell me how much improvisation is actually going on in that room, even though it is one of the national standards. So a couple of colleagues and I, um, a few years ago, did a presentation for the state um, music ed thing. It's uh, our clarinet teacher, our flute teacher, and our composition teacher and I all co-team teach our contemporary ensemble. And so we took the ideas that we used teaching improvisation to them and like turned it into a clinic of you are in your band room. What are some ways that you can start to incorporate like this improv idea into it? And so um, I just sort of like took that and kind of started to adapt it to now you're in a solo setting. You're practicing this piece. 
You're like learning a multi-percussion piece. Like your setup's going to be different every time. Um, like improvise over it, like make up like scales and patterns and stuff like that, just to get comfortable and familiar with that setup and everything. You don't have to just practice the piece. Um, Cause it's kind of the, the idea of learn the instrument, not the piece. And that's actually something I talk about with like my drum line and stuff too. I'm like, we got to learn how to like play the drum. We don't just need to learn how to play like the show music. Um, I know Anthony DeSanza back a long time ago, like actually did his, I think it was his doctoral or his master. One of his theses was on incorporating improvisation into like the daily practice routine. And I actually read that. And I was like, this is a super cool idea. And it's just kind of been a thing that I've kept doing and, now expanding to my students they really want to do like a fully improvised like nexus style percussion ensemble concert at some time in the future um because we've worked through like bill Kahn's um creative music making book which is phenomenal if you want to start teaching improvisation to your students and it breaks down like how to like you know start in duos like you and the student and so we did a lot of that in studio classes and we start to expand it so improvising is fun and people get super intimidated about it because when people think improvisation, a lot of times the first thing they think is jazz. But there's an entire history of composers like Mozart and people like that who made their names as improvisation artists even before they did as composers, really. And so it's a, it's been cool to see, you know, a lot of artists like Tim Feeney and Aaron Butler and people like that that have, like, really made, like, improvisation, like, their field, their art form, their performance venue. Um, and so I'm just trying to like kind of open that up to more students and stuff that are super scared of it. Cause it can be scary to walk out on a stage with an instrument and not really have an idea of what's going to happen for the next half an hour. So that's kind of what the session is. And I do, I do some demonstrations, you know, ways to take different ideas and play around with them and stuff like that. So, but again, I'm glad I got to do it. I'm glad that the session's going to be out there. Now I want to have the opportunity to like actually present it some places where I can actually have the interaction that I intended to have. Right. Cause it's a, it's a completely different set session that way. So, yeah, I had done some practice runs with mine and, and I did it with studios and I did it with like, just like some random someone, someone who contacted me was like, I'll, I'll listen to your thing so you can prep. And I was like, this is great. And I, then I realized that I actually have two different sessions that I, that I actually have. And I had to like do the one for the teachers more, which is the one that's, that's going to be mine. And then I have an in-person one that's, that's goes in a completely different direction for that audience. And you probably, I would guess that's the same kind of thing. Like I have to, this has to be different ways I wasn't planning. Yep. You know, and it is cool that they've got, got it in guidebook, you know, as like, you know, as a portion of it and stuff like that. It's a little bit weird that like the dates are like a week after <laughs> in guidebook. You know, I get that they're trying to like kind of calendar wise, keep it over sort of like some kind of the same, you know, weekend schedule and stuff like that. All right. Well, let's get to kind of catching up, Tracy. We right. talked, last time we talked, I think was spring 2017. So that's a, it's a, it's a little ways ago. So it was a minute ago. <laughs> What's been going on at North Alabama in the last bunch of years? I've gotten tenure. I've been really? promoted twice. I am now actually officially at full professor status, yes. which has come with more work. Of course it so is. So that's yeah. been neat to discover. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because you always, because you know, everybody's always like the stereotypical, like you get full professor and then like, you, you know, you only come in one or two hours a week, et cetera, et cetera. No, what I found is that full professor means I get asked to do more things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the committee um, work you, uh, you somehow avoided is now coming up now. Yeah. Well, it's things like now I get to do things like chair promotion and tenure committees, right. um, you know, stuff like that. So, which, you know, is it's it's nice to be on the other side of that process because, wow, did I hate that process a lot. Um, right. Like to the point of I felt sick to my stomach every time I hit that send button to send that all the documentation in and would, you know, seriously consider just, you know, not sending it because I was like, this is 
they hate everybody hates me. This is terrible. I'm never going to get it. I'm going to have like this gigantic black mark on my career. Mm -hmm. Um, but it turned out okay each time. So now I get to be on the other side and kind of like talking others through it of you'll be okay. You're going to survive this. Yeah. You know, if I got it, anybody can get it, you know, that kind of thing. So sure. <laughs> still doing what is a lot of pe a lot of schools, two jobs by myself, because I'm still doing all the percussion stuff and still running the drum line, which as you know, at many, many schools is two people, the thing about it is, is that it's a lot of work, but there are things I like about doing that because I do like that I'm having like very, very daily interaction with like the students. And, you know, for a fact, you see a different side of students in like marching band than you do in like lessons and stuff like that. Cause you see how they handle a lot more things out when it's 105 degrees with no shade and no wind and they're being asked to run around a football field doing things over and over and over again, yep. you get a, a much more solid feeling for kind of like who they are and how they handle stuff. And that is that has actually been super helpful to me in like studio teaching and everything. So so I do like that aspect of it. I just would like to occasionally maybe have a weekend off. <laughs> right. But. Um, you know, we've got, um, we're up to seven percussion faculty here now. I know. I was like, uh, this is that's incredible. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the having some chairs that would rock with whatever crazy insane idea I came up with. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm here full time. Um, Alice Pan is here. She's like living here in town. She's still adjunct. We are working dramatically to make that not be the case any longer. Because if I'm full-time and I'm overloaded and her adjunct load is at the full-time allotable adjunct load, I think we have a justification for a second full-time person here. Yeah, It's convincing the higher ops that that is the case. And then we've got um, Tom Hurst comes down from Nashville to teach drum set for us. Um, Tom was the touring drummer for Tracy Lawrence for a long time. Um, we've got, uh, Mark Katsunas teaches Middle Eastern drumming. William Johnson teaches Afro-Cuban percussion. Andy Crespi teaches Bowron. Like you can come study Bowron here. Tyler Tolles teaches jazz vibes, but what's made it actually kind of work is that, um, Mark and Tyler and William all actually teach virtually. Mm. So we have one of our practice rooms is wired to be able to do online lessons. And so like it's hardwired, so they're not having to like try to connect through like shoddy school Wi-Fi and stuff like that. And so they go in and they sit down with like their drum and there's a camera and speakers and like a good setup there. And it's pretty much like having a regular lesson, just the other person's in New York or Washington, DC or North Carolina. But what's been cool about it is that it I mean, finding someone that has a master's degree that is an expert in Afro-Cuban percussion in North Alabama is not, it's, it's not going to happen. Right. Right. And so the school being okay with the idea of us being able to do those lessons like virtually like that, it's like really opened up like the possibilities of what we could do. And then Andy lives in and Andy lives in Huntsville. So he comes down to do the bower on stuff. And so basically they, all the students study with Alice and I, like we split the lessons between her and I, and then these other teachers, they can take those as like additional, like elective credits. And most of them try to do at least a semester to, if not a year with like each one of these other teachers and stuff. Awesome. Um, you know, I would really like to have the idea of them being able to like take those lessons like as part of their actual like lesson credit load. Yeah. But the way they calculate teaching loads here doesn't make that doesn't make that possible. Sure. Um, you know, because I've got to be able to like I have to have a certain number of hours like on the books. Alice has to have a certain number of hours and stuff. They don't. And so we kind of have to just do it as like extra things. But you know, the kids like doing it. They like getting the experience doing different things, you know. And, I mean, we're able to get these guys that are, like, super – I mean, Tyler Tolles is, like, 
was a child prodigy on jazz vibraphone. And so, you know, getting him to be able to like teach jazz vibes, even though he lives in Washington, DC playing with like the, you know, military band and stuff like that is super cool. Um, Tyler's been teaching with us since he, like he was living in like, I think Florida when he started and then like San Diego and then he's in DC, but he's been on faculty with us the entire time because since he teaches online, he could just keep doing it. So, but that takes, you know, being able to pull that off takes having admit, having, you know, department chairs and stuff that can see the need for that. You know, and I had to, you know, I had to have that conversation, you know, they would be like, well, why do you need someone to teach, you know, drum set? Why can't you just teach drum set? I was like, well, for one, I have a lot of other stuff I'm having to teach them at the same time as well. And yeah, I can teach drum set, but I'm not necessarily going to teach drum set as in the same way that somebody who lives and breathes that instrument as a career on a daily basis is going to teach that instrument. Correct. You know, and so the, the, the argument I ended up using is why do we have a horn teacher and a trumpet teacher? They're both high, they're both high brass instruments. Sure. Why is that? Why is that not the same person? And they're like, well, they're completely different instruments. And I'm like, so is drum set, vibraphone, marimba, and timpani. Yeah. <laughs> right. And every single one of those instruments is a different career path that can be followed. Right. You know? And so once I started like getting them to like, kind of see that side of it, they started being okay with us, like starting to open up, you know, all of that. It also helps that the math works because the guys that are teaching online don't cost mileage. Right. And so the school looks at it as it basically just evens out like what the students pay for the lesson is basically what they end up getting paid for it. So they, they see it as the books balance. So suddenly they're like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> right. And no, uh, and I mean, obviously no benefits or anything else that's on. That's no, there. no, because you, you know, in academia land that they will, they will use all of the adjuncts that they can possibly use to not have to pay benefits. So, yeah. which stinks because it really is like, abusive to adjuncts you know but that's the system that's in place right now so yeah um we're trying to fight it but it is what it is at the moment i mean one thing that is good here is they did raise adjunct pay a couple of years ago it's i mean it's not awesome but compared to what i've seen other schools paying adjuncts it is quite a bit higher so so we've at least got that going for us what was the situation for you all pandemic and coming out of? Well, first of all, our school actually got bigger during the pandemic. Oh, nice. And it's actually continued growing during the, since the pandemic, we like got over 10,000 students at the university this year for the first time with, before the pandemic started, I think we were like 7,000. Wow. And what happened with us was, First of all, when like the whole pandemic thing started and stuff like that, like I like I saw the writing on the wall that like I had a feeling that everything was like there was no way we we're going to be able to do this with like out having to shut everything down. So about a week before like really everything like around the country started to shut down, we got all of the percussion faculty together on like a Zoom or whatever. And I was like, y'all we just need to make the call that no matter else what happens, no matter else what happens, we've got to get these kids like away from each other and minimize the amount that like they're with each other and stuff like that. So we actually, as a percussion faculty made the call to go virtual with all of our lessons and stuff like that before the school ever even made a decision. Hmm. Like we had just decided that because we knew, we knew from experience having Mark and Tyler and stuff like that, teaching virtually stuff, we knew we could do it. And we knew that the kids had experience with it. The kids like knew kind of how that worked. They were comfortable with it and everything. And so we went into it with the advantage of knowing kind of how we could make it work at that point. So, and I had, you know, I had the department chair's approval for us to like make that decision. You know, then everything did finally shut down and that did make it trickier because when we were originally thinking of shutting down, we were still envisioning having like access to the practice rooms and stuff like that. So that students could go in and like, you know, we could still like via the computer or whatever, 
they could be on the instruments and stuff like that. We were just trying to minimize the amount of people that were in like a space at the same time and stuff at that point. And so when everything did shut down, then we did have to kind of pivot because then it became, okay, what do the students have access to at home? You know, cause I'm sure they did the same thing here. They shut down everything and like sent, like sent the kids home, like immediately at that point. And we had some kids that like had instruments at home. We had some kids that had like mallet stations and stuff like that. So we were able to still like, you know, continue on with like some literature and everything. Um, but it became much more, you know, we did a lot of snare drum stuff cause they all had a practice pad. They all had sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, we did some, we did like a composition project. So we did a, we did our percussion ensemble concert became, we paired them all up into duos and they wrote duos using the, using the like, uh, Kate Harrison, like the double music thing. Where like they kind of just like they had the same parameters like how long is this going to be what meter might this be in or whatever but then they each wrote like their parts independently and then they each recorded like their part and then they spliced it together into like one video as like a duo and stuff and then that's actually that's actually still up on our YouTube page as our percussion ensemble concert from spring 2020. Um, and so, so we did that. So that gave them that kind of led into like the the whole improvisation thing and stuff like that a little bit, um, you know. So we kind of went that direction with it. Drumline auditions got super weird because we couldn't be in person. Right. You know, we usually do our drumline auditions in like late April, early May because we have like a summer program that we run. Same, yeah. Um, and so we usually have to have like the section set earlier where we couldn't get anybody together in that. So we got um, John Weber and Bill Bachman and like we got, we had all of the kids send in videos and then to take us out of the equation, we sent the videos to them and had them judge the videos with like no background on any of the kids or anything. Yeah. And then they gave, they gave us that back and like gave us our feedback and we kind of set the line for that year that way. So we, I mean, we did the best we could. Um, you know, the school here, I think part of the reason the school here handled it as well as it did is we have a provost right now that is majorly into online education. Like mm. that's like like one of his major things. Yeah. And he became the provost maybe a year or two before the pandemic hit. Yeah. So the school was already invested into online programs, online technology and stuff like that. So I think that helped this school weather the storm more than a lot of others were able to. And it's just, it's, I mean, honestly, it's almost pure dumb luck, Mm -hmm. but you know, we had already put some things in place that when we had to like make that pivot, it wasn't, it wasn't as traumatizing as, cause I mean, it was very traumatic for a lot of schools. Like I saw the number of schools that were like having to do like, Axe faculty and axe faculty lines and entire school shutting down. Um, We never lost a single faculty line here. And in fact, we were never furloughed. Like, which is also like super rare, I think, during that time. Like that, we never got to that stage. Um, So we were super fortunate. And then we... You know, we were one of the fir- we were one of the first schools for them to decide we w- we were in person in the fall of 2020, like we were fully in person. Now, teacher faculty had the ability to like hybridize classes and stuff, but we had full marching band in the fall of 2020. Like we did marching band basically the same way we had always done. Now, the kids were masked the entire time. We never rehearsed indoors. You know. If, did you have to do this? Did you have the space or no? Like we did. Between and so, like the drill was like written much wider than it normally was. Like even on the practice field, like the drumline wore masks all the time. They yep. wore masks in performances. Wind mm-hmm. players had like masks that they would like pull up and down as they needed to. Like at the rehearsal field, if like we were taking a water break, they would just like spread to the ends of like the practice field and so like. So we took like masks on the buses you know no like we took more buses than we normally would so that like nobody was like sharing seats it was like one to a seat and staggered and stuff like that football was basically for us 
shut was like for the most they played like a five game schedule i think Mm -hmm. which was like the minimum that they needed to play to we were going through the transition to d1 at that point Mm -hmm. so like five games was like the minimum that they had to play for the season to count or whatever we only had one home game oh Um, and so what we actually ended up doing is we did a friday night lights tour so we were going out and doing like we were playing exhibition at high school football games on Friday nights. And so because more of that was local, the kids like more often like drove to those performances. So, again, we could like keep them like separated more and stuff like that. Um, and so we did like we did a bunch of those like they had they had a full season. Um, and it didn't look like it was going to end up that way because, you know, the at first, when they were talking about football, they were talking about, well, we're only to get, we'll only do like a pep band at the end. Like the things that happen at like many, many schools, like you can't be on the field because right. the football players can be like bloodying themselves and slobbering all over the field and stuff like that. But you put a band member out there, you might endanger everyone. I was sitting, I was in on all those meetings. At some point, Lloyd Jones, our director, just decided, well, what if we just, you know, the school wanted us. The school wanted as much of a sense of normalcy mm-hmm. as we could get in that situation. Yeah. And I think that's the second decision that kind of saved the school here. The first one was having invested prior to like all of the, you know, online infrastructure and stuff like that. I think the second one was them making the decision to try to keep things like we knew things were going to be different. Like masks were required in like every classroom. You know, they would do things like splitting, like if you had like a Monday, Wednesday class, you might only be in person. Half the class would be in person on like Monday, half the class would be in person on Wednesday, and then the rest was on, you know, that all that kind of stuff was like in place. Mm-hmm. All the students were tested before they came back to school. Yep. You know, they had like a really strict quarantine process and stuff like that. Beyond that, they really tried to keep it, they tried to keep it like they wanted freshmen to like recognize that they were collegey still. And so I think that, I think that was actually the, the, the second big thing that kind of kept the school from like being pummeled as hard as a lot. And I'm not in any way knocking schools that were like far more conservative sure. because I definitely, I was on that side of things. There were moments when they were saying that we were going to like, I was like, have we lost our minds? Because I saw like all the statistics and everything like that. I'm like, we're absolutely the anomaly with what's going to happen here. And if we're wrong, it's going to be a terrible thing, you know, cause we were, we were the only March college marching band in the state that college marching band that did college marching band really that, that season. Yeah. Cause everybody else was combined to, was confined to playing in the stands and stuff like that. Yep. Um, and so, it, there there was a lot of doubt along the way. There was a lot of times where I was like, I really hope this works because if it doesn't, it's going to be a disaster. And fortunately the kids bought in, you know, the kids like they, they bought into the whole thing of, you know, they wanted the experience. They wanted to be able to do the thing, mm-hmm. but they also knew that they were going to have to do things differently in order to make it work, you know, and, and we, we did it. We managed to get through it. Um, and I still, you know, I still look back on like that year, just amazed at not only the fact that we did it, but the group was actually one of the stronger groups we've had from like just a playing and performance standpoint and everything. We, even with like all the restrictions we had and everything, like they just, you know, they dug in and made it happen. Yeah. And really that group kind of set the trajectory for like the last couple of years that have come after that. Um, but it absolutely 100% could have blown up in our faces too. Yeah. So, and yeah, yeah we dealt with, Oh, we're missing half of the clarinets this week because, <laughs> because you yep. know, they were, they they were around each other and one of them has tested positive and now well there goes the clarinets. Yep. You know, but the, the crazy thing is we that season during band camp, the entire front ensemble got quarantined. 
<laughs> because of like one person in the in the section. But then beyond that, I think we only ever lost one person to quarantine from the percussion section the entire rest of the season. Because hmm. we were at 10 snares that year and we had like we had like a couple of shows that we did with nine, but I think that's it. If you give kids the chance to do the right thing, they're probably going to. And, you know, we talked to them. We're like, if you all want to make, if you all want this to happen, if you want this season to happen, you all as a group have to commit to doing this, holding each other responsible for doing it. You know, so like they would like, they would fuss at each other if like they saw somebody like pull their mask down or something like that. Um, and so I give them all the credit in the world because it wasn't us that made that season happen. It was them because they're the ones that maintain that made it work to where we had the full section basically every time we went out the whole year. Yeah. You know, and then like we still did percussion ensemble, but it was, you know, um, we rehearsed outside when we could everything. We didn't do like a concert. Everything was filmed. Mm-hmm. Right. So like all of our concerts that fall semester were like virtual, you know, so we brought in some guys like we did um, Sequoia, which is like this very cool piece for like um, flower pots and stuff like that. So we filmed that like outside amongst the trees and everything like that. So it was like it was fun to be able to do that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, we had as normal of a fall 2020 as I think could have possibly have been had. I want to tr- transition to you being on the board of advisors for PAVS. Uh-huh. Uh, when, when did that happen for you and what's that experience been like? Um, it happened actually three years ago because I was up for reelection closing yesterday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we'll see if by the time this airs, if I'm still on the board of advisors, <laughs> because it's, the, it's like with anything else, you can do like the two, like three year cycles or whatever. So We'll see if I'm still on there by the time this actually airs. You know, I've done a lot of committee stuff. Like I was on the college pedagogy committee. I was on the new new music research committee for like quite a while and like helped hope a fo- helped a folk helped host a focus day. Words are hard. Um, <laughs> you know, now I'm on the percussion ensemble committee. I've always been interested in like that side of things, like that aspect of all of it. Um and so you know, when I was nominated for the uh, board of advisors, I was like, first of all, there's zero chance I'm getting elected to the board of advisors. None of these people have heard of me. No one's going to vote for me. And then somehow that happened. And I was super surprised that it did happen. And then when I'm going on in the same year as like Andrea Vinay and Neil Grover, and I'm like, one of these things is not like the others, <laughs> um, you know, but then the pandemic happened right after we all got on the board of advisors. First experience I had being on the board of advisors was the decision to cancel PASIC. <laughs> like that's like, that's really where we started with it. And even then we were kind of on the back end of it because that decision, you know, PAS is like very, like the executive committee, like does a lot of the work and then the board of advisors is literally like an advisory board. Right. So the executive committee does a lot of stuff and then they like bring it to the advisors. They're like, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down thoughts or whatever. Sure. So a lot of the decisions of what to do with PASIC and the like switching to like the virtual format and stuff like that had been done, I think really before it came to the board of advisors, mm-hmm. you know, so at that point it was really, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. We need you all to like help us like make sure that this is going to be as good of a thing as we can like make it and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's been very cool to like have the experience to kind of see how everything is done, like at the upper, like at the upper levels, like, you know, the decision making process and stuff like that. I mean, obviously the people that are on there are super committed to, trying to like build PAS and stuff like that. And it's a, it's a huge organization, Mm -hmm. you know, and it has its flaws. 
everyone knows it has its flaws, right? And they have done some work to try to like address those over the years. Like I think starting like the diversity alliance was like a huge step in the right direction for PAS. And some of the sessions that they did during the pandemic and stuff like that. So it has been good to see to see it from that side. You know, it's like with anything else, you also like get that you you see how the sausage is made kind of thing. And so there is that like, you know, yes, there are things that you see that you're like, huh, I'm not sure that I'm like really super down with that. But I guess I can see where that's coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at like the the size and the scope, I mean, if you think about a society that accompanies everything from middle school students to orchestral percussionists to rock drum set, I mean, it's impossible to have a society that fully covers every single one of those things. Right. Like, I remember going to see a drum set clinic at PASIC where like Bob Becker and I can't remember who else it was. It may have been like Bob Becker and Scott Johnson or something like we're in the room, like jamming out to like this drums and like PAS is the only place where you're ever going to get an experience like that. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and I've been to other conferences like the, my wife took me to the horn society conference once mm-hmm. and First of all, I've never heard Till Eulenspiegel played on horn. That Till Eulenspiegel is the horn version of Porgy and Bess, <laughs> right? You know how like you walk through the exhibit hall at Pace and it's like Porgy and Bess at like every keyboard booth and stuff. It's Till Eulenspiegel at the uh, horn one. Um, but like they just they like nobody really talked to each other. Mm. Like it was like kind of super quiet. Like everybody was just kind of like oh, in their like own little pockets of like a couple of people and. PASIC is not that at all. Like being on the board of advisors, I feel like I'm kind of like, I've gotten a lot of opportunities like between being able to present at PASIC and stuff like that. And so it's me kind of trying to like, you know, be able to be involved in trying to let other people have those opportunities, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, maybe every once in a while be able to steer things, you know, with a new idea or something like that. Like the brainstorming session that they had at PASIC last year was like super cool to like be in the room with like all the people that are on the board of advisors. And you know, the, the, the prompt was basically what's next. And it was like, no idea was off the table. Mm-hmm. And so to like have like all of this, like brain trust of people like in there coming up with like every wild or crazy idea that they could come up with uh, was pretty cool to see. Now, how you put all of that into fruition, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. But exactly. but to at least to at least be, you know, as they say in Hamilton, to be in the room where it happens mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Yeah. So no, that's great. Um where I want to take this is uh mm-hmm. I have kind of I'm gonna do like kind of a reduced format of the random ass questions close that right. I do. Yeah. Uh, that you did a longer one with me earlier, but, but one of the things I want uh, that I, I think a lot about is, is how much I enjoyed seeing who made the most recent, like some of the most recent people that have made the board and, and realizing like, okay, finally, this is starting to look like our actual community community. Right. Yeah. And so, so the kind of the question there is, you know, how have you thought about put into effect or just kind of, been aware of issues of inclusion, diversity, equity, kind of over these last few years? Well, I thought about it in the fact that I actually almost did not run for the board of advisors again Mm -hmm. because I felt like that might be taking away the opportunity from someone else. The reason that I did go ahead and do it is that I thought more about like the way that those elections are structured and stuff like that. And that it's not necessarily going to do that, but if I don't do it, then I'm not also there having the ability to raise those questions. I think about this a ton, you know, and because I have, I have a super diverse studio. 
like very, very widely diverse, like more diverse than I think a lot of other studios are. And one of my big things is they need to see people that look like them or sound like them or from their, like they need to see those people doing this. Right. And so that's one of the things I like really try to keep, keep in mind when I'm doing like guest artists, you know, it's something I try to keep in mind when we're programming recitals, Mm -hmm. you know, like one of our recital requirements at this point is you've got to have someone who is from a underrepresented or marginalized or something like that community, like on your, on your program. Um, because my whole thing is, is that if I don't make it important to me, they're not going to understand why it needs to be important to them. And so I really like, I really try to make sure that that's kind of at the forefront of a lot of the stuff that we do. And I'm not perfect. I'm a white guy who 100% understands that like I have gotten a lot of things because of like who I am and stuff like that. I fully well acknowledge that. Um, I really started teaching at UNC Pembroke was where I really first started noticing all this. Cause that's a historically na- uh, first people's native American institution. Like it started as an Indian normal school. And so it has a very high um, percentage of like Native American students and stuff. And so I started even seeing like just how they were treated, like when we would go to, you know, perform different places and stuff. And I'm like, this, this isn't right. They're like, these kids are doing the same thing everybody else is and they're being treated inherently differently. And it's not that anybody was doing it on purpose, you know, but like, just like you go to like a day of percussion or something like that. And the way that they're like approached and talked about and stuff is just like, it's just a little bit different. And it was just, that's where I first started noticing it. And then, you know, as I've gotten older, I've become more and more aware of it. Um, And so I really, I think that I wrestle with it on a, on a regular basis. Like, like I said, I wrestled with it with the whole, you know, do I do the board of advisors the nomination again? Yeah. And if I get knocked out of it because of a more diverse community getting on there, I'm not even in the least going to be worried about that because I think that's one of the issues that a lot of people have with PAS is that it is very, it is in a lot of ways skewed one, like, certain directions yeah you know and like you said it is starting to widen and it is starting to broaden but there's still so much more work to be done there yeah so i wrestle with it because it's like the whole am i keeping someone from doing it but by the same token if i'm not there trying to make a difference is that helping also is that helping also yeah no that's i think that's the right thing to wrestle with yeah um, you know, and so like I, you know, when it comes to like our guest artists and stuff like this, I, I hate to say, like, I'm not bringing in people because they fit like a certain category. They're all phenomenal artists. Right. But, you know, I've tried to like definitely like widen the circle of like the artists that I'm bringing in because my whole thing with it is, is that if you're not, if you're not doing that, you're you're consciously making the decision not to do that. Right. Right. You don't widen your circle by accident. Right. You don't diversify what you're doing by accident. It's intentional. It has to start with a conscious decision of, I'm not bringing in enough female identifying artists. Right. Or I'm not, bringing in enough artists from like different races and different cultures. Right. If you don't start there, right. Which does seem very intentional. Like it does maybe seem like you're trying to like create a quota or something like that. But if you don't at least start at that point, you're never actually going to start. Right. This is going to sound really bad. And if you feel like you need to edit this part out, you can. I look at a lot of like percussion ensemble programs band concert programs, stuff like that around the country. And I'm like, 
you're just not even trying. Right. Like if you can't find literature by these other communities and stuff like that, that you feel like fit into what you're doing, you're just not making the effort at this stage. Right. You know, you know, cause I like, you see the things like they did, they ran the percentage of like at Midwest and TMEA and stuff like that. of like the percentages of like, you know, it's, it is ridiculous that at this point it is still that skewed. Right. You know, and you see the same thing if you look at like college percussion ensemble programs and stuff or high school percussion, like, you know, again, I'm not perfect mm-hmm. and I'm never claiming to be, but I'm just not sure that everyone's even trying sometimes. Oh, no. no, they're not, <laughs> you no. know, and I get it. Like I'll post something on Facebook about it and I get the whole, well, I just want to play like the best literature that's out there. And I'm like, the best literature in our field is a sort of arbitrary decision to begin with. Yeah. Like our field is less than a hundred years old. Right. (laughs) So to say that at this juncture, we know like what the, like, yeah, there are pieces that I love and that I think are important to program and stuff like that. But, you know, there's a whole lot of other stuff out there that's available. Yeah. And if you're if the students aren't interacting with like, you know, say a composer who's alive, they're missing out on a huge opportunity. Yeah. Um, and so I just I really think of it from the side of you have to it has to be a conscious effort. Mm-hmm. You know, and if and I also look at it from the fact of if my students can't look at what we're playing and see that I've made that effort, then I've failed them. Because our students are so aware of that stuff at this point. Yeah. Like, because especially like, especially with everything that happened, like from the pandemic on. Yeah. Like they're so aware of it that if they can't like look at what you're doing and see that you're at least making an effort, then I, I feel like you've kind of failed them. You know, I even went back, for example, I changed a lot of the methods books that we have because I'm like, all of our methods books are by white guys. Yep. And it was super hard. It was hard to do that because I realized there's not enough representation even in like our method books. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was, now you said that, and I and I my first thought was Julie Davila. I was like, okay, right. Like, okay, and then I was like, um, Nancy Zeltzman's four mallet book, right? Yeah. Julia Julia Gaines's four mallet like marimba books. Yep. Um, we actually switched to. Um, it was Rainer Carroll too, isn't it? Like Rainer, that's the Tiffany book we're using now. Yeah, um, we're p- using Patricia Eastless's Two Mallet book, oh, which sweet. is phenomenal. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah, um, you know, so we have like we have tried to like you know, you know, we've gone that route with it because I'm like again, yeah, these there's a lot of other books that are tried and true, but you know, I. And I guess some people would probably say it's performative. You're just trying to like make it look like you're trying to. I'm like, no, these like the first things that these kids when they play to call come to college are going to be out of these method books, right? You know, and yeah, we still use Dale Clues. We still use like that stuff along the way, but that can't be it. Yeah, <laughs> none of us use one method book for every like for like the entire sum total of what they do, right? You know, nobody uses one snare drum book. Right. You know, it's always like, I'm going to do these things out of this and these things out of this. And I'm like, so just put more diversity into that mix. Yeah. You know, and it's, you have to make the effort. Because <laughs> if you don't make the effort, you're consciously making the decision not to. Mostly. And I, I probably got a little soapboxy there, but, you know. Also, I mean, and this is not, I'm not trying to like, you know, I've got three daughters and I see like even what they go through on like a daily basis and the amount of like crap that they go through. Oh, yeah. Purely because they are women. Yeah. And I'm like, this is like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) And we have to do better. 
There's no reason for us as a society to not do better other than people choosing not to. A couple other questions, uh, Tracy. Mm-hmm. What What is a favorite book? I read incessantly. Awesome. <laughs> so it's oftentimes hard, me, hard for me to give a favorite one. Mm-hmm. I would probably have to say one of my favorite books that I have ever read is the original Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, okay. I, and it's great that it's like, we're doing this interview, like Halloween weekend or whatever. I just, I love that book. Mm. Yeah. There've been some terrible music movie adaptations of it. Yeah. But there's just something about the way that like that book is told and the language of it and everything like that. I've just, I have always loved that book. So awesome. Yep. What's uh, um, anything recently that like has really stuck with you? I read a lot of books about like teaching and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like I read a lot of books about like um, coaching and stuff like that. I'm also kind of like obsessive with that because I think there's a lot we can learn from like sports coaches and everything. Sure. I would say, OK, looking at the list here, probably the energy bus. By John Gordon. Okay. So it's a book about how to like about how to like build culture and like collective energy in like a group working towards like a like a certain goal and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard about it first from like some people that were like teaching drum corps. And like reading that a lot of the ideas of like how to like make make everything like get people like kind of on like the same page and stuff like that really like read, re- registered with me. So. I would say that one. You remind me, you're from Oklahoma. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Okay. If you go back mm-hmm. to Oklahoma for whatever reason, maybe it's just right. to, to hate on the Sooners, which I know is fine. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed this season thus far. I am yes. sure you have. <laughs> uh, and I just noticed looking at your shirt that it is very OSU colors. on That's that. purely coincidence, but I did notice that this morning as well. So, <laughs> but, but what when you've gone back to Oklahoma, is there some place that you that like it's you go back and you're like immediately I have to get this food that I can't find where oh, I am? It's Brahms. Oh yeah. Okay. It is 100 percent Brahms. Yeah. Like I can tell you how far into Arkansas you have to be before you hit Brahms. <laughs> I don't even have to think about the answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. And it's because, like, growing up in Oklahoma, like, it was, like, for those that don't know, Brahms is an ice cream, like, burger, stuff like that shop. It's a chain that the way they have the same chain set up is they will not franchise if it's outside of a certain radius away from, like, their main, like, where they do all of their stuff. Yeah. And so it's really centralized to, like, Oklahoma, Arkansas. Do they have it in Missouri? I don't, if they do, it's real. It's like Springfield or way South. Or right. Johnson. Like the South part. Yeah. It would be there. If um, so I think maybe like Southern Kansas, I think you know, like it's really like restricted to like a very narrow area, Yeah, but it is like the best ice cream. And it is literally like the best cherry limeade you will <laughs> ever drink in your life that you get from this place. And so that 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 is easily it that is the like I, I know that i live outside the radius of which they would like franchise but if they did franchise out here i would be there like all the time oh i didn't know but, if you were going to be a franchisee i didn't know if it was going to go that oh, deep. i teach college so i don't have the money to do that <laughs> <laughs> right right but, yeah um but yeah it would be that i mean the other one would probably be um head country barbecue Okay. Um, because again, that was like blocks from my home. I grew up playing like baseball with like the head family that like owned it and stuff like that. And that is still, that is still the barbecue to which I compare all other barbecue. Nice. So, yeah. Sweet. All right, Tracy, last question, similar to the last time piece of art, any style that has impacted you the most recently. Jim Peacock's, Marimbo Quartet, Death Wish. Mm. Okay. That piece, when I first heard it, I was like, 
this is probably to me the pinnacle. This is the best marimba quartet I think that has been composed. Wow. Okay. And I know that that's a, that's a strong statement. And I have told Jim of this before. Um, there is something about that piece that just struck a chord with me. Unlike like any other, unlike any other piece that I've really heard in quite a while. Is it, is it one that you've done? Like your group has done kind of thing. Oh yeah. We did it and we actually liked it so much. We did it in the spring and we brought it back in the fall. Nice. And it was the same players because even the players were like, we love this piece. We want to play this piece again. Awesome. So, you know, that doesn't happen very often in like college where like you'll repeat a piece. Right. On a concert, but the players wanted to bring that one back. Yeah. And I was like, I am 100% on board with that idea. I don't know that I can put into words what it is about it, just the, the sound of it and like the way that like she combines like the different voicings and everything like that in it. Just really, really from like the first time I heard it struck a chord with me. And, you know, and so, yeah, that that piece. And every time that I see anybody else find that, like people are starting to find that piece more and more and stuff and starting to play it. I'm like, I am so happy that you were playing that piece because I think everybody needs to be playing that piece, you know. And since then, we've done like we've done we're doing um, another of Gemma's pieces this fall, um, All Corners of This Floating World Swept, which is also a super cool piece as far removed from the aesthetic of Death Wish as I think you could get which I also appreciate about her as a composer is that like every one of her pieces is very different. She's got, she's got a new piece that she wrote for third coast percussion that I am sitting here, like just literally counting down the days until it's, it's released into the wild, Yeah, you know, cause they still got exclusivity on it, but I'm like, we, I've already told her, I'm like, you must let me know the minute that that is available. So, yeah, it is that I and it's weird because, you know, I'm a percussionist that I had a long phase where like marimba was like my thing and what I loved. And I've kind of come out on the other side where I'm like the marimba is the marimba. (laughs) And so for like it to be like a marimba quartet Mm -hmm. that hits me like that was kind of surprising to me at this stage. But it is definitely that everyone should play Death Wish by Jimmy Peacock. Because it is a gorgeous piece. So great to catch back up with Tracy on the podcast and at PASIC. He and I were able to have an extended conversation, oddly enough, in the expo hall at the site of my old haunt, the C. Allen Publications booth. I look forward to keeping up with his exploits and thoughts as the years move along. And one more note, Tracy's virtual pace succession will take place at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Saturday, November 19th. Rather than a rave this week, I'll say a few words about my own session coming up. I was quite pleased to get a chance to present this year at PASIC, and also happy to get the opportunity to write an article in the PASIC 2022 preview issue of Percussive Notes. A number of folks told me they read the article and were looking forward to the session. At this point, I want to shout out three folks who helped me coordinate this and gave me opportunities to present versions of this clinic to themselves and their studios for feedback. Megan Arndt, Josh Gottry, and Adam Bruce, who contacted me out of the blue for that opportunity. I greatly appreciate their help. This session is a culmination of much of what I've learned doing this show for the aforementioned six and a half years, and the ways of applying this information to inform and improve one's own teaching as it has done so for me. The session is presented without PowerPoint slides, which will hopefully still make it a valuable resource, but I am more than happy to give that information that would normally be on the slides to those who want it. Just let me know. The focus of the clinic is twofold. First, I talk about how to use existing podcasts to improve and supplement teaching with some general and specific suggestions. Secondly, I go into some of the nuts and bolts of putting podcasts together 
along with some information about interviewing, editing, scheduling, and many other items I've picked up over the years. I'm happy to get a platform at PAS to discuss all these items and many more, and also want to state that I am more than willing to present a version of this presentation to others, studios, state educator fests, TED Talks, whatever you need. Just get in touch and we'll make it happen. But hopefully, you'll be able to check out the session when it first occurs on Friday, November 18th, 2022 at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and up and available on the PAS website through the rest of the year for PAS members. Hope to see you there. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for more of the people I interviewed for In-Person PASIC 2022. Until then.